Welcome back to Rocky Mountain Surgery. This is Allie. And this is Jason. We thank you guys for stopping by with us this week. We'll be talking about burn surgery and the burn rotation, which is typically done in the second or third year of residency. But before we start, Jason, I think we had a question from mm-hmm. one of our audience. Nathan, a second-year medical student, sent us an email with a couple questions for us. The first question he had was, do residents in their research years have opportunities to pursue research in global health? Now, we'll actually have a whole episode on global surgery and global health. Where and we... I'm, I'm sorry that we lied to you guys last time. So we have <laughs> a super secret, very exciting guest who will not be able to make it onto the podcast until uh, the first week of December because he actually does not have any internet access where he is practicing right now. Mm -hmm. So we wanted to make sure that we included this very special guest, and thus we're going to postpone that episode a little bit. Mm -hmm. So that episode will have much more information when it comes to global surgery opportunities. But to answer the question, when it comes to doing research, you have lots of freedom in how or what projects you're interested in, whether that's specifically related to the research you want to do or what type of activities you want to be involved in while you're a research resident. So that means if you have an interest in doing global surgery, at least in our program, and you can come up with a plan or have an interest in doing a research fellowship that is a project that's already developed, you can certainly apply for that. And if you are invited to do that fellowship, uh, the program is very amenable to that. We've had residents who've done that in the past, actually as recently as just a year or two ago. And so that's certainly an opportunity. I think that approaching programs or institutions that have had longstanding relationships in the global surgery field is important. I think that the Paul Farmer Global Health or Global Surgery Fellowship at Harvard is a great opportunity. And then there are other more institutionally based things like where I went to medical school at UNC Chapel Hill. There was a longstanding relationship with Malawi and our surgery department had helped develop a surgery residency there. And so there were multiple surgery residents, usually one there on the ground in Malawi every year uh, performing outcomes-based research. And that would be an excellent thing. And I, I should say that I don't think that you necessarily have to be from the specific institution that you apply to a research opportunity to. For example, the Paul Farmer Research Fellowship was done by a Colorado resident that's at Harvard. And then we had residents when I was a UNC medical student who were from other surgery programs, not just UNC, doing the Malawi Research Fellowship. So it's definitely possible. And I think that becoming connected to the giants in the field, because I think it still is a relatively small field, will be important if that's something you want to uh, incorporate into your future career, because a lot of this is also not not just the work you do, but having an established plan and having established mentors. That'll be mm-hmm. important for you. And we certainly have faculty on our campus that have demonstrated an interest and have ongoing projects on a fairly annual basis, essentially an annual basis at this point, correct, that are involved in global surgery opportunities? Yep, that's definitely true. So Nathan, we will definitely get more for you on this subject in our global surgery episode, Mm -hmm. which should be out at the beginning of December. Mm -hmm. He also brought up another point, which I think is important. And I don't know if we wanted to talk about this during our last episode on research years. Uh, But so at least at our our program, they've adopted a five plus two model, meaning you're doing your five clinical years but there's a dedicated two years of research. And so Nathan mentioned that he was a non-traditional student. Presumably he's just older than the majority of surgical residents uh, and had concerns with doing research or having dedicated research years away from the clinical years because of that aspect. And I think the best way to just address that is ultimately it's, it's a personal decision as to whether those 
two years work or fit in well with your career goals. I personally feel that if, if you've gone straight through and you're more of on the traditional path, those two years in the grand scheme are not going to make a huge difference. But that's not necessarily the tr true for everyone. So if you've had other careers before you've gone into medicine and you would like to advance your career in medicine, maybe at a more rapid pace in the two year model, it doesn't quite fit for you. So there's no way for us to directly answer that personally, but I think that is something that people should think about when they're deciding whether a five plus two model works for them. The other thing I would say to you, Nathan, is that just because if you decide to not do two dedicated years of research, that doesn't mean that you can't do research during your clinical time. I think it makes it you know, more difficult and especially doing basic science things. But if you're doing clinical work, I think that the residency is conducive to that. Uh, Dr. Wichter, who we'll hear from in this episode, did ongoing clinical research throughout his clinical years of residency, and people make it work. The other thing that I would say to you is that there are many surgical residency programs who offer global health electives, usually within the fourth or fifth clinical years, and that's something that could be possible for you as well. Mm -hmm. So Nathan, thanks for sending in that email. Those are two great questions. Please feel free for our listeners, if you have other questions you'd like us to answer, send us an email. Our email address is rmspodcasts at outlook.com. We look forward to hearing from mm -hmm. you. We'd like to make this more of a regular part of our show. So we have two great interviews for you guys today. So we're going to make our portion uh, pretty brief. Uh, any fun things in the last week that you did, Allie? Let's see. I had a relatively calm weekend for me before I was on call for 28 hours on Sunday, which was, if you know me, exciting <laughs> as it usually is. But otherwise, I think it's just, for me, very nice to be back in the hospital. I generally moonlight one to two uh, nights or days per month, and it's just a great refresher of your skills and your knowledge, and it kind of keeps you on your toes mm -hmm. while you're in the research lab. And for me, college football season is in full swing, and my girlfriend and I are both both big college football fans. So that took up a majority of our Saturday. And then Sunday, we all we went again went out for a nice bike ride because the weather here is just perfect this time of year. Very jealous. So again, this ep episode is going to be about the burn surgery experience, and we're not going to go into too much detail about it because again, we have two lengthy but very interesting interviews. But Ali, any memorable moments from your burn rotation? Definitely. So there was a day on my burn surgery rotation. Again, we do this during our second year of residency. It's generally uh, us, a second year surgical resident and a second year emergency medicine resident who staff the burn ICU. And we were coming probably to the third week of our month long rotation. And myself and my co-resident admitted about 200% uh, total body surface area burns in one day. So what does that actually mean? Obviously, you can't have 200% one person. We admitted five people from a variety of causes in one day, including multiple people who had over 50% total body surface area burns. There were multiple etiologies of all of these burns. They came from basically three different types of accidents, not to give too much away with HIPAA, but just not only practicing my skills in terms of taking care of people with large burns, but also kind of getting into that disaster management and triaging skills that day. It was like an actual burn disaster emergency drill that was happening mm -hmm. because we knew that we were going to get several folks from an explosion. 
And then but when we were waiting on them, we had two people who came in that we did not realize were going to be coming with mm-hmm. greater than 50% burns. And so that was just an incredibly intense day of kind of designating all of us to be taking care of a certain person or a certain task. And it was a huge learning experience for me. And some of those people are actually still in the hospital. So I have been following their you know, clinical course up until now, and it's, uh, people have done remarkably well, which is very good. To go along with those statements, the thing I remember most about burn surgery is the continuity of care you get to uh, get to experience while you're in the burn unit. Because like you said, Allie, these patients are in the hospital for an extended length of time, much more so than likely any other surgical subspecialty. And so you see the full process of their burns, of their injury. And I had a patient who came in with very, very severe burns. And after a week or so, he ended up doing incredibly well. And so we were able to extubate him, and, and the patient goes from being uh, someone who uh, experienced a, a severe trauma to an, a real person because you're able to communicate with them and, and learn who they are. And, I, and then because you're with them for several more weeks, you, you get to know that patient probably better than you get to know uh, a lot of patients that you encounter in the hospital. And so that's something that I think a lot of us take away from, and Dr. Wichter and Dr. Wagner both talk about that in their interviews as well. Yep. So why don't we hear from Dr. Wagner first? All right. Well, thank you. Welcome back to Rocky Mountain Surgery. We have the privilege of having Dr. Ann Wagner on the show with us today, who is one of the burn and critical care surgeons here at the University of Colorado. Dr. Wagner went to medical school at the University of North Dakota. She's a proud North Dakotan, um, and she did her surgery internship, residency, and surgical critical care, as well as her burn surgery fellowship at Hennepin County Medical Center, which for many of you guys who are listening may be familiar with a very large trauma center in Minneapolis. So thank you for being on the program today. Thanks for inviting me. This is fun. Excellent. So one of the questions that I really want to ask you, because I have a little bit of background knowledge myself about what you've done, is can you tell us a little bit about your career path into surgery and burn surgery specifically? Because it's not normal. Is that why you're asking me kind of? Honestly, I, I kind of think that a lot of people that we interview there are variants of normal, um, and you have, I would say, more of a winding path into surgery, but you'll find that everybody's road that we've interviewed has been different and interesting. So well, I'd like I, to hear about yours. I, went, I grew up in a small town in North Dakota, and I really didn't even know how to get into college. My parents, nobody had ever gone to college. I didn't even know how to get started. I got married a couple of years out of high school to the guy I was dating in high school, started having children a year later. And I was, I had had child number four and I always wanted to be a physician, but I never told anybody that I was afraid that they would think I was crazy really. And so, um, my sister-in-law was going to college. It was during a really bad economic time. They'd lost their farm, declared bankruptcy. And so they paid for her to go to college. So she showed me how to go to college. So she's the reason why I got to where I did. So I started college when the kids were two, three, eight, and ten. The two and three year we lived sixty miles outside of Fargo. And so I would I would pack up the the two younger children. I'd get the other two boys ready for school and then we'd drive the sixty miles into Fargo every day. They'd go to daycare at North Dakota State and and I went to school. I was there for 
just a short period of time when somebody found out that I used to do advertising. So I got jobs. I was working three jobs at the university doing tutoring and advertising. And then with the kids after about two years, I just, I, it was just got to be too much. So we moved into Fargo and I finished my undergrad and still, I was nervous. I didn't tell anybody I wanted to go to med school. And my advisor said, when I went to him with my first B, cause I was mortified he said, you know, have you thought about medical school? And I was like, oh, I never thought of that before. <laughs> then uh, I went ahead and applied for medical school and I got in. I only applied to North University of North Dakota and I got in with a full tuition waiver for the first year. So then I did the driving thing again and drove the 80 miles daily um, wow. to come back to the kids and realized pretty quickly that wasn't working. So I um, moved up there during the week and then on the weekend I would come home work 20 hours in the emergency department, and then go back up on Sunday night with the two kids. You were working in the emergency department throughout medical school too? Mm -hmm. Yep. So that I, I worked every weekend. So I did about 20 hours a week. So then when I got, I did the same thing with surgery. I thought everybody's going to think I'm crazy. I'm, I've got four kids. I'm older. Who, who goes into surgery, you know, when you have all that going on? And so finally this one day, one of my classmates, he was going into surgery. I was going to go into ED. And he said, why are you doing something you hate when you've been doing this for eight years? Why do you? And I'm like, God, you're so right. So that changed that he made me change into surgery, which is what I wanted to do. In North Dakota, there are no burn centers. So in the ED, I had seen burns, but we always just transferred them out. I didn't know what went into burn care at all. So then right about the time I was getting ready, I continued working in the ED even after graduating med school. So I was a nursing assistant with an MD degree for about a month and a half. And uh, during that month, I, they, somebody said, hey, there's a woman from Hennepin County. Her mom's really sick, but she's in that room. You should go talk to her. So I went in and talked to her, and lo and behold, she was a burn nurse at Hennepin County. And she said, oh, you're going to love our rotation. It's just going to be great. And uh, long story short, she connected up our two daughters, her, who are still best friends to this day. So it was just a weird connection, but uh, we are all still best friends. So I went to Hennepin, and I started and I was scared. I remember one of my first nights on call, some, one of the nurses just came casually walking in from the outside. She goes, yeah, I heard a whole bunch of gunshots. She said, they'll be coming in pretty soon. And I just was like, oh my God, what have I gotten myself into? This is crazy. But it was fine. Uh, but same thing. One of those nights I had to go up to the burn unit and put a line into somebody. And I, this guy was over 90% burned in a spray plane accident. And I went in and I was really blown away by the whole thing and I, I I saw I saw this guy all mummified never seen that before it was scary to me and all of a sudden he just looked at me and we made that connection and I thought oh geez there's a whole person inside there it just mm -hmm. changed me and from that moment on I was just curious and I, I loved the reconstructive part of it I did my intern year or month there I loved it my second year I was completely convinced this is the most best thing ever and I'm still really close friends with the guy who was there was a man named John Toomey who actually started the burn unit and uh, when he was a resident, if you could imagine that, wow. and then ran it for 40 years. And so we're still close. And, and uh, anyway, um, he he mentored me and he and kind of was like, I'll help you get into this. So that's how I got it. But then things changed. I got through residency. I had done my critical care. I got offered a job in trauma and thought, okay, it's a lot of money and I don't want to do any more stuff. And I was going through a divorce. So it just made sense to be done. And 
And so off I went and did level one trauma for five years. And towards the end of that time, uh, my old institution called and said, we really need somebody with critical care training. Dr. Toomey has retired now. Dr. Peltier needs to retire. Can you come back? And so I did and did the burn fellowship and then eventually took over as the co-director there. That's an amazing story. I think that you speak to something that's special. I just wanted to clarify one thing you said about the patient who was mummified as a burn patient. I think you're talking about the amazing amount of dressings that people have on. And for medical students who are listening and residents who are listening who haven't rotated on burn, that is something that will amaze you, the amount of work and care um, that goes into properly dressing burns. So that's what we're talking about when we say mummified. But the thing I wanted to get back to is talking about what an interesting group of patients are, burn patients, in so many ways. So people get burned in many different ways, whether it be, you know, accidents in their fields of jobs, whether it be car accidents, whether it be other types of, you know, large vehicle accidents, house fires, it could be a thousand things. But there's something special about the patients and there's something special about the physiology of these folks. Can you give us a little bit more about what that was that really drew you into burn care? I, I, like I said, I like the reconstructive part that you're actually, my goal with every patient is to get them put back together to make them even better than they were when they got to us. And in some patients' case, that's true. We're, we're able to get them to stop to stop alcohol use or drug use. We get them reconnected with their family. Uh, I've had a gentleman that was in a bad um, uh, meth lab explosion who, uh, after getting clean and sober, as he would say, he went back to school, he got his teeth fixed. Uh, he's a completely different person. Hmm. Uh, so we get a lot, I think, and we have long, long continuity of care, which I think we really like. From a physiologic standpoint, I was always interested in burn because of all the patients I took care of, they're the hardest. There's mm-hmm. nobody harder than a really sick burn patient. Case in point, we have a 94 percenter right now that, you know, how do you even get somebody's skin closed to help prevent the infections that you know they're going to get? And, you know, she's had episodes of having fungus growing and, and, you know, how do you get them past that and get them closed at the same time? But here in our burn unit here at the university, I mean, we're winning the battle. Our mortality rate is only 2.4 percent. Uh, with a national average of about three and a half percent, so we're doing a good job. Um, we're very quality oriented. We always want to do things that are going to improve the life of our pa- our patients. Now, when you talk about somebody staying here in the burn unit for a long time, I know that there's something we talk about when we're on our rotations in terms of the size of the burn is very important. Also, the age of the patient being important as well. But how do you generally, when you're teaching residents or medical students, tell them how long to anticipate a person coming in with a certain percentage burn will stay? Well, what we, we tell patients and our residents is that you should expect the patient to stay one to two, to two days per percentage of burn. It gets to be more on the two-day side when you're looking at a really big burn, like the 94 percenter. She's getting closed with uh, cultured cells, so you can't do that every week and get her closed. You're doing that every three to four weeks, so it takes a period of time. Things that we've changed though here that I think we're speeding that up a little bit is we don't, people are not left intubated or sedated. They're not in a coma. Uh, our 94%er from the very beginning uh, has been sitting at the side of the bed and, and participating. And so people are getting better faster 
because they're also being asked to stay awake and participate with the world. And you kind of already hinted at it, talking about the culture itself. One thing that was really interesting to me when I came through this rotation is the amount of new technology, so to speak, that's come through in, in burn care. These cultured cells are really cutting edge. Could you talk to us a bit about that? Yeah, cultured epithelial cells have been around since the late 80s, but there's been improvements since then. The University of Colorado has long been one of the sites that has done really well with the cultured cells. At one point, not long ago, I think we had three or four patients that were getting cultured cells. And we typically don't do that for anybody unless they're over about 75% burned. The cultured cells, we take a specimen of their skin, a full thickness specimen in the operating room. They prefer a two by four centimeter specimen. When we're looking at the lady we were just talking about, that's a large percentage of what she has left. But we had an area that was perfect for that, so we sent that in. They can do it with smaller, but it's better if we have the larger areas. They then make these uh, cells on sheets that are on a, a cotton backing. Uh, we take them to the operating room the day before we place the cultured cells, and we clean up the tissue that we're going to put the cultured cells on. Uh, we make sure the donor sites are healthy and ready to go. And then the day of surgery, we bring them in. Uh, they cannot be washed with chlorhexidine or some of the normal things. It has to be baby shampoo or something very gentle because the cells are very fragile. We then harvest whatever donor skin is available. We mesh it anywhere between four to one to six to one. We put their own mesh skin down, and then these cotton-backed sheets, very thin sheets of skin are put down on top of the, the grafts. These are then left in place for anywhere between five to 10 days, uh, and at that point, we take them down. We just took our last patients down yesterday, and she had very, very nice result from it. The new thing that's going to be happening is the company that's been making these for the last 30 years is going to be making it on an absorbable backing. Oh, so we nice. don't have to remove the cotton, which will be really awesome for us and the patient. Uh, we are going to be one of two sites that are going to be doing that last phase of the study. So we're pretty excited to be able to participate. Um, but that, you know, this is a lot about the University of Colorado. We're really very highly ranked um, with some of these studies. So it's really awesome. But it's these cultured cells, the two things that have made patients survive that didn't before are the cultured mm -hmm. cells and the fact that we now have readily available um, allograft or cadaver. Mm -hmm. When I was a resident, we would have to call the, the blood bank and say, how much cadaver do we have available? And that was all you could excise because there wasn't that you couldn't get as much as you needed. Now we don't even think about it. We get, We have that plus other alternatives, not as good of ones, but we have it readily available. And that has a lot to do with all the donor alliances and, and the push for people to understand how important that is. Now, when we think about covering wounds, I think that's probably one of the most important things that I learned on my burn rotation. And one of the things that makes the burn rotation different than the other critical care rotation. So in the same ways, you're talking about people with multi-organ failure at times, mm -hmm. all different systems that you have to control, ventilators that you're helping man, um, antibiotics, all the different medications. But on top of that is the whole burn piece and covering skin. So one thing that you just were talking about was using allograft from cadavers. Now, there are other ways to close people's skin as well. And so there are a variety of folks listening to this podcast, some who may be burn surgeons and some who may be medical students mm -hmm. wondering, how do they choose what to put on burns? You know, whenever possible, if it's, you know, we would prefer to just excise and immediately graft. That's always the best way to do From it. From the patient's own skin. Yes. Which is um, called autografting. Auto That's always the preferred way. And depending on how much of them is burned and where they're burned will depend on how much we mesh those grafts to make it to get a larger um, area. 
so that's our preference. But there are times when we, we, we typically have a very high level of acuity here. So we'll have several patients over 50%. In those cases, sometimes we need to get the burn off and they need to be covered. So we will take the burn off and allograft or put cadaver on everything so that they are closed. That inflammatory response recedes somewhat. Uh, their body is tricked into believing that they are closed and that it can settle down a little bit. Mm-hmm. takes away a lot of their pain, decreases their infection rates. So in a bigger burn, we will t- go with allograft. Reason being, it will stay longer. We can usually get it to stay in place for at least two weeks versus if we used pig skin or some of the other alternatives, you maybe get five to seven days out of them. You don't get a long time like you do with allograft. There's other products that we'll use in different parts of the body. If we have exposed bone, tendon, um, those are difficult to close wounds. We may use, we have a multitude of biologic type dressings that we use, but our primary ones we use are Integra, which is a shark chondroitin uh, bovine cartilage product that's been around since the, I think around the year 2000 is what about, no, yeah, around the year 2000 is when it came out. That gives a nicer base and will help to get granulation tissue over those areas that aren't perfused. Another thing we found recently that works really, really well are, we have an amnionic chorionic membrane called EpiBurn, uh, which is loaded with growth hormones and seems to cause a really nice, healthy granulation bed. We also use a multitude of different dressings. As you guys know, that's a three-hour lecture in of itself. Um, <laughs> but uh, we do like to use wound vacs in some cases where we're worried about the wound bed. It seems to help with the granulation a little bit. Nice. Well, thank you for that overview. One of the things I wanted to talk to you about was working with second-year surgery residents and this being part of their foundational critical care knowledge. So one of the first things that I wanted to ask you about is how can someone be successful in the burn ICU? Um, I think that most, the most important thing when you're in the burn ICU is to, to see yourself as the attending for that, physi- that patient, learn everything about those different patients that you're taking care of, and really take ownership of the unit. Because by doing that, you're going to sp- pay special attention to everything everybody is doing around you. Uh, I think that's, I remember I did my burn rotation in the critical care as a second year. That was our first critical care. And I remember we were all scared to death because we had never managed a vent. Um, we hadn't done any of those things. And all of a sudden we had to learn that. So I would say, and what I, what I did and what I, and the way I got comfortable with it is I took advantage of all those people around me. I learned from the wound nurses or, or for the burn nurses, what the different aspects that were different about the burn patients and who needed feeding tubes and why do they need feeding tubes and And how did they put them in? I learned from RT how to manage the vent. What are the different vents? What are the different modes? I read about them, but you learn more with hands-on. I listened to the physical and occupational therapists as far as when we should be mobilizing people and what was the best way to do that. You know, so I read the I read the the typical ICU books that most people read, but as you know, they don't cover burns very well. No, they don't. Um, So uh, you can learn more from people that have a lot of experience, and then just constantly kind of looking in the literature if we got when we when I got my first tens patient mm-hmm. I looked it up to find out what it was why was it caused what could I do what could I expect things like that uh, those are the things I find that are the best way to get your feet wet in the rotation and I really want to stress too that although there's a lot of technical things we do it is a lot about clinical management and I think if you don't do that part you really miss a huge part of our rotation I agree. I think that the critical care is good. It's like critical care plus. Mm -hmm. Um, And the plus, I think, can be hard to learn. And all of the things that you just described about talking how to manage closing the skin and things like CEAs. I mean, you live 
in your own world a little bit on burn, but the critical mm -hmm. care is the same, yep. at least from my experience as a resident. Potentially more so than any other ICU, there is a requirement for a multidisciplinary approach when it comes to managing the burn patient, when it comes to nutritionists, physical therapists, occupational therapists, et cetera. How do you prefer or envision your team functioning when it comes to a multidisciplinary approach in the ICU? We, we make what I, I like to call goal-directed rounds every day with our multidisciplinary team. And so at each patient's bedside, we round with uh, the, the residents, medical students, PA students, uh, charge nurse, pharmacist, the therapist will come in and out. And we round with each patient's nurse individually. After we get done with our, our, our rounds going through the patient systems, the, the resident or mid-level in charge of that patient, myself and the nursing staff, go in and discuss with the patient. These are our goals for the day. How are you doing? Are there things that we aren't covering? Are, are, is there anything that we can do different to make your care better? We found that that really improves the lines of communication. Everybody's on the same page, and we make sure that everybody's hearing the same thing at the same time. For the very complicated patients, uh, we will do weekly conferences with the family and even more members of the team, maybe psychology, chaplaincy, to make sure that we're covering all the bases on a weekly or every other week basis. We also do weekly multidisciplinary rounds where we have even more people. Uh, we will have everybody from coding and billing to uh, those of us that are taking care of the patient. The burn patient is really complicated. Their discharges are complicated. Case management and social work are heavily involved. We have all of our own people for those roles. The discharges can mean a lot more than just I had my appendix removed and I've got to make sure and keep my wound clean. Uh, we're trying to set up dressing care, physical therapy, all kinds of things. And being that we cover eight states, we can be talking about them being hundreds of miles away. So it takes a village. <laughs> it does. It does. <laughs> Anything else that you feel like we've forgotten to ask you or things that you want future surgery residents, surgery residents, people involved in academic medicine to know about burn? I just want them to keep it in mind as an option. I didn't even know about it when I went to be a surgeon. I thought I was going to be a general surgeon and or a trauma, which was what I really wanted to do. And and this is a form of trauma, but it's a very specialized form of trauma. And we are very different. And we can't be boxed in like everybody else. It's a very different entity, but it's a fun entity. It's a fun world. When we go to our national meeting, there are all aspects of people there from the firemen that were at the very beginning of it to the EMS, to the patients, and then all the way to the very end to the support group people. So er everybody's at the meeting. My patients are there. All the people I know that work in all the different fields of burn are there. There are special interest groups for every single discipline. So we really try to include everybody. And I think it's important to realize all of us as physicians, that we're not working in our own little silo, that we only get our successful because of the people around us as well. We have to think of them as a team with every part being as important as the other parts. One thing that I remember from my burn experience is the amount you interact with families. And I think that's true for all ICU experiences. You have families where their lives have been completely upended and they're looking at the doctors on a day-to-day -day basis to give them an explanation of the ongoing management of their family member. Uh, could you give us kind of your insight on what is involved when it comes to interacting with families and guiding them through this process? You always have to kind of put yourself in their place and you have to talk to them and and be very clear that, and you have to think about it in your mind. If this was me or my brother or my mother, what would I want for them and how would I feel about it? And and, and explain it in language that everybody can understand, regardless of whether somebody f tells you they're in healthcare or not, most of the other people may not be. 
I'm a keep it simple, stupid kind of person. That's how we are in North Dakota. So I kind of keep it plain anyway. But, you know, make a connection with them first. You know, do a little bit of pleasantries. Don't just jump right to it. Turn off your pagers and your cell phones. Know that they have your undivided attention while you're there. I've been on the other side of the bed. I've lost three of my siblings and my parents. And I know what it's like to be that other person. So I always think about what that's like. When I'm going to give people bad news, I literally go in the room first and look at the room because they're going to remember that moment forever. So I want to make sure that I've made it as much of a, 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 the most pleasant that I can for that experience. And, you know, we know our families for a long time and they continue to follow up with us. And a lot of times our patients come back to see us with their family and we don't recognize the patient. We recognize the Mm -hmm. family because the patient looks so much, they look awesome. You know, they've maybe gotten their weight back, their hair's grown back. They just look completely different. And my goal, and I tell them that every time, is to get them out and look like they are not a burn survivor. They're just like everybody else. And I want somebody to see them and see a burn. Wow. Well, Dr. Wagner, we thank you so much for talking with us today, for giving us all of these pearls, for taking such excellent care of our burn patients here, and for teaching us what you know. Well, thanks for inviting me. It was great. It's fun. So Jason, any key takeaways that you got from Dr. Wagner's interview? Well, the things she discussed about brain surgery were obviously incredibly informative, but truthfully, her background, her story to becoming a burn surgeon is it's truly inspiring. The amount of barriers she overcame to reach the, the place that she is at now, I can't even really relate to that at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, so very inspiring story, absolutely. And one I'll always remember whenever I'm thinking of any kind of hardship I'm facing, people have a much different trajectory than you had to get where we are. I'm very grateful to the path I've had. With that note, I think we'll listen to Dr. Wichter's interview now. Here with us is Dr. Arg Wichter. He's the Associate Director of the Department of Burn Surgery here at the University of Colorado. Dr. Wichter obtained his MD at the University of Colorado School of Medicine and then completed his General Surgery Residency and Burn Surgery Fellowship here at the University of Colorado as well. Dr. Wichter also completed additional training at Shriners Hospitals for Children and at Brooke Army Medical Center, as well as he com- uh, completing a Surgical Critical Care Fellowship at the University of Michigan. We're here today to talk with Dr. Wichter about the resident experience and expectations on the burn ICU rotation. Dr. Wichter, thanks for joining us. Thanks for allowing me on your fancy podcast. (laughs) All right. So to start off, we ask everyone this. What led you to become a surgeon? Yeah, you know, I I didn't go to uh, medical school initially thinking I would do surgery, uh, but it was the anatomy lab that really kind of showed me the, I guess, beauty of the inside of the human body and the technical aspects of dissection, which I really appreciated. General surgery specifically, it kind of came to me as a sub-eye when I realized that general surgeons can also do critical care, take care of some of the sickest patients in the hospital, but you can also operate on them and fix them. Uh, and that really appealed to me. So it was a uh, the fact that you can be both te- technically able to help someone, but also do the medicine part as well. So that that's what appealed to me for general surgery training. And then 
moving forward, what attracted you to burn surgery specifically? Was there one particular experience or was it just the general pathology that attracted you? I never had any specific exposure to burn patients or burn pathology before my burn surgery rotation. I actually remember reading like the few weeks before the burn surgery rotation, like I looked up some stuff on burns and I saw the pictures and I was like, what, what am I going to, what am I getting myself into? But um, one of the attendings that was on, on service that time, Josh Goldberg, who I kind of look up to almost as a, as a mentor for me, he did burn surgery, he did critical care, and he did kind of like a version of trauma acute care surgery back in the day. And, uh, and so when I was on service with him for that month, it really inspired me about uh, the fact that I could do all these things and burn surgery specifically. It was just eye-opening, the fact that I could do um, these kinds of procedures on people and transform their lives where they come in and they have these horrific injuries and it takes time. It's a process, but you can build someone back up to their um, uh, hopefully pre-injured functional status. And there's a lot of artistry involved, a lot of planning. You can operate on people from head to toe. It's a mix of general surgery, plastics and orthopedics all kind of rolled into one. Um, and then you also take care of, honestly, some of the sickest patients in the hospital for large burns. And so that, that whole kind of, um, environment, um, and the teamwork that's necessary, uh, to get a burn patient through successfully, that really kind of just gave me the, like, pins and needles feeling, you know, after like two weeks on service. And I was like, wow, this is, this is something that I can see myself doing. This is something that, I found myself reading more about and just being really interested in and thinking about after the rotation. And that's how I kind of just landed in it. Having said that, what is a typical day like for you in your job as a burn surgeon? So, well, since I wear many hats, you're talking about just uh, my week on burn. And is it my OR week or is it my ICU week? Which week is it? <laughs> Either your burn week in the operating room yeah. or your burn week in the burn ICU. I guess to compare and contrast a day in each of those weeks would be great. Um, the ICU week is pretty laid back. It's just like a standard ICU week where we round on the patients and then uh, look at wounds. Um, you're kind of doing a little bit of operative planning for... Uh, the operative surgeon to see like where you know you would you would need to do surgeries on certain people on certain times of the week. Um, it's pretty laid back. There's always one or two sicker patients that you kind of have to deal with, but overall it's pretty um, I don't know it's pretty pretty mellow and from my perspective. We're always getting calls from the doc line about consults and transfers. You know I don't think a lot of residents realize that. Dr. Wagner and I, myself, we we took almost 850 dock line calls last year between the two of us because there's just two of us. So we each take 15 nights of burn call a month. Um, and so we're getting called all night with like consults and things, things that don't end up showing up in the burn unit as an admission, but perhaps as a consult. So that's, that's kind of a, a different thing. 
Um, and then in the OR, you know, uh, usually the rounder communicates with the operative surgeon and we um, plan out the week which patients need surgeries and then we just go ahead and operate. Usually we operate three to four cases a day, five days a week. Um, and what cases are you doing specifically? Uh, so the, for burns, you do a lot of debridements, uh, skin grafting. You can also do contracture releases, um, amputations. Uh, sometimes you do some local advancement flaps. Again, uh, any parts of the body from head to toe. We do cultured epithelial autografting, which is where we, um, for the large burns, greater than 70%, we'll take full thickness biopsies of the skin, and we will um, send the biopsy over to a lab in Boston, and then they grow uh, the skin, uh, the patient's own skin, in these little Petri dishes, and then when they have donor sites available, we have them grow out, let's say, 20 to 45 plates of skin, and then they fly them over the morning of, and we put them, we put the skin grafts on uh, that morning. It's kind of like the our version of a Whipple surgery and burn surgery, and just kind of give you a perspective. So each one of those little cassettes of skin, which is about the size of a credit card, costs anywhere from three to four thousand dollars per credit card sheet and we put again anywhere from 20 to 49 sheets at a time so $150,000 of skin per operation and these large burns will require sometimes five to ten rounds of these cells so it's a lot of resources a lot of investment so we're doing everything we can to make sure the wounds are perfect and then frostbite season is coming up so we do a lot of frostbite stuff and then we'll at the end of the winter, we'll do a lot of amputations. I think frostbite is something that is not that well known about. I would say just generally in the medical community or even from a general surgery resident perspective, do you have any specific tips about treating frostbite? Say you were a rural general surgeon somewhere and you had a patient who came in. The biggest thing I would say is there is treatment for frostbite. It's not, in my mind, acceptable to just say, well, the limb is uh, frozen, a frozen finger, that's just too bad. You know, we give people TPA, clot buster, the same thing we give to stroke patients for um, our frostbite patients. And if we give it to them within uh, eight hours is the best, but you can give it up to 24 hours. If you give it within eight hours of rewarming the extremity, you can decrease your amputation rate by 70 to 80%. Wow. Which is huge. So there is therapy and the key is to get them to our burn center for that treatment as expeditiously as possible and that's kind of like the big educational point is there used to not be much you can do but more and more evidence points the fact that tpa makes a big difference in these patients and that's because there are like microvascular clots associated with the frostbite yeah so the for, you know, frostbite damages the tissues in a variety of ways. So you can have ice crystal formation in the cells and outside of the cells, which then can lead to a uh, apoptosis of the cell. But you also have, obviously, a lack of perfusion to the tissues. And then the key is that upon rewarming, 
just like with any kind of uh, revascularization of phenomenon, you have a increase in uh, free radical oxygen species and you get microvascular thrombosis of your capillary beds after rewarming. And so not only do you have damage from the cold, the lack of blood flow, the ice crystals, but then you take another hit with the thrombosis, which prevents blood flow from actually getting to those injured areas. And the TPA then breaks up those little clots and allows improvement in blood flow to those areas, which then in, in turn allows you to potentially keep your fingers, keep your toes, keep your feet. I think that's, that's a amazing. big deal. And that's something that's not so much in the Absite study books yet. Yeah, it's Absite study books and books in general are always 10 years behind. Mm -hmm. But this therapy is around for decades. It just mm -hmm. hasn't really caught on. And honestly, not every state deals with frostbite, right? There's going to be surgery residents out there who have never seen frostbite in their lives because they are doing a residency in a climate that never sees cold, like mm -hmm. Florida or California. So it's only specific to the states that have harsh winters. So maybe that's also why it's not really out there because it's not a uniform phenomenon. It's a region geographic specific disease. Hmm. So to build on what Ali was asking, a majority of us won't be going into burn surgery. Majority of our listeners. What? <laughs> why not? Hate to break it to you. Yeah. I, I uh, feeling, the, feeling the call of trauma. <laughs> but truthfully speaking, you mentioned the phone calls that you received, that you and Dr. Wagner received. And with the idea that a lot of us are going through training, what should we be getting out of the burn experience most? What does the general surgeon need to know about burn care that will allow, that will improve patient outcomes and help you guys do your job well as, uh, in addition? Well, I think exposing residents to the field of burn surgery just in general so you can see what a burn is, learn how to gauge its depth, learn how to accurately estimate total body surface area, learn all the, just, even just not know the specifics of resuscitations, but just kind of understand the things that go into those treatments. And then the, the types of surgeries we do is important. We're not expecting you to know everything about burn surgery and the technical aspects. And from an operative perspective, I would say every general surgeon should be able to harvest a skin graft, be able to use a dermatome with some skill, as well as recognize what a healthy debrided wound bed is so you can put said skin graft onto, and then just some basic uh, wound care dressings that can kind of get you through. If you were to do a skin graft or you did have a chronic wound, what options you have in terms of taking care of that. You know, burn surgery is a specific field that requires a year-long fellowship. So we're not expecting to churn out people who are experts in burns, but it's just the fundamentals of being able to size a burn, base it on its depth, know when to transfer a burn, and basic wound care, uh, I think, are what are important. Because you'll get a burn question or some version of it on your boards. They ask burn all the time, mm -hmm. electrical injury or chemical injury. Mm -hmm. So we want to make sure that you're, you're also capable of answering those questions and passing your 
They're written in oral boards. So it's no secret. It's no secret that Colorado has legalized marijuana, and you in particular have had an interest in this. Uh, maybe I worded that inappropriately. Had an interest in the effects of that decision. Yes, thank you. <laughs> I wanted to get out there. Though. Uh, <laughs> you've had an interest in this, the effects of the legalization of marijuana in Colorado, and have seen firsthand how those effects have affected your patients. Without going into the ethical and legal aspects of it, how has the legalization of marijuana changed your practice? Well, twofold. So. A uh, specific injury with butane hash oil burns has, we never used to see that. And then since 2014, when a recreational marijuana was legalized, we've treated now over 60 patients with butane hash oil burns. And then, again, that's just a simple way of extracting the THC from the marijuana plant using butane as uh, as the solvent, again, readily over the counter whatever uh, thing that you can buy from Amazon you can buy a pack of 12 for like $32 so it's readily available cheap and people get in a lot of issues with that and then the second fold is because a lot of people smoke and eat marijuana products on a regular basis we found that treating their pain and anxiety is very uh, difficult because it does something, and again, I'm not sure what, but it does something to pain receptors and anxiety. So we have issues with that. And we're studying that actually now in our unit about giving people uh, dronabinol, which is synthetic THC, to try to kind of improve their anxiety and pain control. Because there is kind of a, withdraw a marijuana withdrawal. You can't just stop it cold turkey. So not only do these people have difficult to control pain, but also different emotional things associated with their trauma, but what kinds of burns are they coming in with? Like if there's a butane hash oil explosion, what does that patient generally present like? Typically they have their hands and arms, face burned, depending upon what kind of shirt they're wearing, then torso. Most of the time they're wearing shorts too, so they have their lower legs burned as well. It's a pretty characteristic pattern upper torso specifically, because they're holding the, the butane or around those vapors, and so it impregnates their clothes uh, and their upper torso. And so when, when a spark happens or a, a little light, then all that goes up. And again, it's usually arms, face, torso, legs. Now, Dr. Wichter, in your practice, a skin graft can mean multiple different things, I would say. So there are different types of materials that you use for grafting, whether that be the patient's own skin, whether that be xenograft or allograft. Could you give us a short explanation of what all of those things are and the different situations in which you would use those, specifically for the <laughs> residents who are coming up on their burn surgery rotation or maybe medical students who are seeing burn for the first time? Okay. Um... So you can look at it three ways. So uh, a skin graft or an autograft, you use that to replace third degree burns. Burns that have completely destroyed your own skin, you need to replace that back. And you can take that from any part of your own body. You can either do a sheet graft, full thickness graft, split thickness mesh graft with different ratios of mesh. That's the only way to heal an open wound, basically, that's that's been burned over a reasonable area, you have to do a skin graft. 
autograft. Allograft is where you take cadaver skin that's frozen and you use that as temporary coverage on the wound before you do your final autograft. So the situation is that that would apply if you have a large burn and you've already harvested all the skin. There's no more skin you can take. Like, say, the person you were talking about who had the cultured cells. Sure, that's 80% burned, and you know that they only have 20% of their body less than that available for a donor site, so you can't skin graft their whole body using their skin that they have just once. You have to wait for their donor sites to heal back and harvest it again, heal back, harvest it again, until they're um, fully grafted. So in the interim, what you can do is place cadaver skin in place of the human, your own, excuse me, your own skin. The body gets fooled into thinking that it's your own skin, so you have decreased wound infection rates and sensible losses. It actually starts to grow into the allografted skin, and then before it rejects it. Hmm. So usually you have to replace it after two to three weeks. You take it off and you put a fresh one on. And you keep doing that until they have their own autograft available to cover the wound. So that's allograft. And then xenograft, as it implies, is another species. So the xenograft that we use is pig because we love to eat uh, pigs <laughs> in this country, right? We have a lot of bacon, pork products, um, which is awesome. South America has developed uh, tilapia as their xenograft. Really? So, yeah, they have, um, because they eat a lot more tilapia and fish, they have that more readily available than than, than swine. So, you know, it's kind of neat, depending upon what your animal resource is. So, yeah, we use porcine <laughs> xenograft, and all that is, it's a biologic dressing, and that's exactly what that means, which means... You can take the xenograft and put it on a deep partial thickness burn after you've debrided it in the operating room, lay it down, and it basically acts like a like a scab, like a secondary skin, uh, which helps people with uh, pain control because you don't need daily dressing changes. It's covered with this scab, so to speak, this pig skin. And if everything goes as it's supposed to, your own skin... The burn skin will heal up underneath it, and then the pig skin will peel off like a scab, uh, and you'll have healed burns. But again, this only applies to select patients that have deep second-degree burns, because if you had third-degree burns, xenografting, allografting is not a permanent option. You still need an autograft. That helps. That was very helpful. Thank you. Now, you work mostly with second-year surgical residents as well as emergency medicine residents uh, in the burn ICU. Can you kind of go into detail about what your expectation is for those residents? And you also work in the surgical ICU as well, so this would apply more broadly. And then you've mentioned the passing points of communication, so if you have thoughts on that, feel free to share those as well. So what do you guys remember from working with me? What what my little cliche saying is? Never forget it. Attention to detail? There you go. Attention to detail. That's the key. That's the key to success on the burn surgery rotation, as well as I th honestly any surgery rotation, is you want to make sure that you are detail oriented in your plans, patient management, etc. Know what's going on, and, and 
obviously this shouldn't be said, but read, try to understand what's going on, ask questions if you don't, uh, because this, like any rotation, is your, uh, is your time to get educated. And I can give you a, a burn talk, like I've got a, a bunch of burn talks on PowerPoints, and we can talk in the OR. But in the end, this month is yours. So take advantage of it. Read about burns. Try to understand them. Ask Wagner and myself uh, clarifying points so that you educate yourself and truly understand what it is that you're doing. Because only then will you carry that knowledge through uh, to the future. I think that's the most important. And then communication, I think it's really important for for people to understand. You got to have open communication with your attendings. So if you know of something's uh, pl like a plans change, the patient status has changed, communicate with the attending so that everyone's in the loop. And communication has to be two-sided, cannot be one-sided. What do you mean by that? So I've noticed. A lot of times, people will send a text message, a long text message that's like 10 lines long. So, you know, my text message is like one letter. It's like K. <laughs> it's like K. Because I like to, I prefer to talk, but I know a lot of people prefer to use the text, and that's fine. But if you send a text and someone doesn't reply back, don't assume that they have received the text because that's happened many times where someone sends a text and then four hours later the attending calls or there's an issue hey why wasn't this done oh I sent the text you didn't get it that's not communication we have phones and cell phones for a reason so if someone doesn't reply back try again or better yet establish those ground rules in the beginning of your rotation say hey how do you like to communicate because I think there is a generational divide mm -hmm. and it's getting kind of worse and worse. The more, you know, young people come through the residency, the older I get. I'm not saying I'm an old man, but I'm a Gen Xer and we, we talk different, communicate different than millennials. And that's just, that's all that's known. So set expectations that if I don't reply back on my text, I probably didn't get it. And if you don't hear back from me, it's something important and you're, and you call and call my phone or page me, mm -hmm. like go and knock it up the next level. That's a good tip for really anybody. I think in residency, while yeah. you're talking with attendings or mm -hmm. your senior residents or nurses and, uh, residents talking with each other that a page or a text, like a text page or a text without somebody talking to you in return does not equal the other person understanding the information that you presented to them. Um, well, yep, and I'll give you a classic example. This just happened a few weeks ago. I'm talking to uh, the resident uh, the next morning and say, what happened last night, blah, blah, blah. Oh, I had to put a central line in this patient. I'm like, excuse me? Why wasn't I notified about this? It's an invasive procedure, lots of risks. You should load the boat before you do anything like that and go cowboy style in the ICU. Oh, I called you. And I thought, well, what do you mean? I don't remember us having a conversation. No, but I called you. 
So then I looked at my phone, and sure enough, I had a missed call at 7.30 p.m. That doesn't mean that just because you make the effort to make a phone call doesn't mean that you've actually communicated. Mm -hmm. So the next step is dial the pager number or try to call again. Because, again, unless you actually have some sort of two-way back and forth, you're really not sure that the person got the message. And in, in what we do, trust is a very important thing. And you want to always be 100% honest, truthful, and communicate those things, those, those in an honest, open, truthful way because the attendings have to tr be able to trust you. You're not going to go rogue and do something without letting them know or that the information you're giving is accurate. So set up the expectation early of how you're going to communicate and make sure you follow through on that. I think the safest way to summarize all this is if you're not sure whether you should send a text or call and speak to someone, the answer is 100% of the time to call and speak to someone. That's at least the rule yeah, I try. And no one by. will ever get mad at you or they shouldn't get mad at you. If you're just trying to do the right thing and communicate, load the boat. Always a good piece of advice, and I think the, the earlier a resident realizes that and accepts that uh, plan of attack, usually the more successful they are. It only helps you to have more people around to support yeah. you. It's not a sign of weakness mm -hmm. no. that you're calling someone to let them know something. That's a sign of strength because you understand your limitations and you understand uh, that there are consequences and, and issues if you make a wrong call and you're in training. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That reminds me of something we talked about in the intern episode where if you're having an issue and you're an intern and you have a patient who's on the floor who's decompensating and some or something happened, a major test result comes back and you want to talk to your team but they're in the operating room, go downstairs to the OR and talk to somebody. A text message to a phone that is in the operating room in somebody's pocket or on a counter somewhere is the same as nothing. That's correct. All right. Now, Dr. Richter, one of the things, there are so many things about burn surgery that I think are interesting and unique, including the procedures that you do. But one of the things that I think is very unique to burn surgery is how long you take care of your patients and the kind of relationships that you develop with them. If you have somebody who has a large burn, how long are you their doctor? Well, you're technically their doctor for life because you have um, to deal with all the scarring issues and potentially contracture things, uh, wounds that may crop up. But on an inpatient level, some of our largest burns, like the last 95%er we had, he stayed 11 months in our ICU, and then he went and was in rehab for three months, two or three months. So he stayed 13 or 14 months in the hospital. Wow. And again, that... That sounds like a lot, but it really, you don't understand the gravity of that time until you literally are looking at the next calendar year for them to leave. And so the entire second year class took care of this patient and probably knows what I'm talking about. And now we have another one who's also 95% burned. And she will also be, uh, I anticipate her staying until March, April of next year. Um, and so that's a, that's a very unique kind of aspect of burn surgery that the whole treatment, it's, uh, it's a marathon. It's not a sprint. And I tell patients' families that from the get-go. It's not as simple as, 
going to the OR, taking out a gallbladder or an appendix, and you're good to go. Like this is a a long, drawn out process. So you get to know people and their families very well. And sometimes that can be difficult, especially if you have a you know a poor outcome or someone doesn't make it. That can be tough for you. It can be tough for the unit nurses because you you spend so much of your time and energy trying to make someone better. So you always want to make sure that you see them through. But then what's great is when you see them in clinic a year or two out and they're doing awesome and then they're back to their normal life, it's it's worth it. It's kind of a unique, it's a unique part of, of what we do. Yeah, definitely. All right. Well, to finish off, one of the questions we have for you is you work at a place where you, you train and are there specific benefits or drawbacks to uh, to doing so? Well, the benefit, obviously, is that you know what you're getting. So if it's a fellowship, uh, then you know who the staff are. You know the strengths and weaknesses. So that's a positive. Uh, and it's positive probably for maybe your social situation. You have a significant other and they have a job. You have kids. It's hard to move and displace people in their jobs for fellowships. And that also costs financially. Uh, the drawback is that you don't see and learn a different side of things. Hmm. You know, you don't get a fresh perspective because you go to a different institution. They do things differently there. No matter how routine it is, they don't do things like they do in Colorado. And that's also really refreshing and good to experience. So when I did my Burn Surgery Fellowship, I purposely did rotations out at UC Davis, Shriners, and at Brooke because I wanted to see how they do things different. And for my Surgical Critical Care Fellowship, I especially wanted to go somewhere different because I wanted to, again, see a different side of things. They did a lot of ECMO in their unit. They took care of severe ARDS. They were a coordinator referral center for severe ARDS. We had people flown into our SICU from Canada, Indiana, uh, surrounding states, Ohio, just to manage their ARDS in our mm -hmm. surgical ICU. And so that gave me, uh, and then we also ran our own CRT. We didn't mm -hmm. have renal do it. We did it ourselves. We put in the orders. And so you learn a new perspective and you get more tools in your toolbox to take care of patients when you do a fellowship somewhere else so you can take the things that you've already learned and and then add to that so that's that's very positive but again um, you have to be able to pick up take your family with you displace jobs and things like that so there's that other side of it but I personally think that going somewhere else for your advanced fellowship training is a big plus uh, because again it, it helps you kind of see that there's two sides to every coin. In our last episode on the podcast, we talked about residents doing research. Did you do research throughout your residency? No, I did not. Um, I, did, uh, I didn't take dedicated time out to do research. I did a lot of research projects while I was a resident. I made, tried to make time for that. Uh, and I went to a lot of uh, conferences and did presentations but I didn't uh, specifically take dedicated time off for that. 
the uh, research projects that you were involved in, were they within the burn discipline or they were kind of within trauma or? I did uh, stuff with geriatrics with Tom Robinson uh, over at the VA. This was when he was first kind of starting out the geriatric stuff and frailty. Um, so uh, that's what I, I did stuff with that as an aside. You know, it was just something interesting that uh, I picked up a project or two with people that I got along with and, and serve as my mentors nowadays. So, but I know the landscape's changed and now research is a mandatory two years, um, which again has its own uh, benefits uh, as well as negatives. Um, but it's good as long as you're productive. Mm -hmm. then that's a good experience. Yeah. And I think what you were just saying is something that we talked about last time, that the research that you do doesn't necessarily 100% have to be in exactly the type of specialist that you're going to be when you are at the top of your career. That yeah, it's that's about correct. mentorship yes. and being productive and learning how to do research. Yes, that's exactly right. It's just uh, learning how the process works, making sure that you kind of uh, get get an idea of how to put a project together, what it takes, the work it takes to do a chart review or a, a prospective study or basic science bench work. You know, it kind of helps educate you and make you well-rounded in that way. But I don't think that would ever be a negative that you didn't do it in the field that you ultimately chose. It's always a plus that you have some research experience. Um, and how can you truly predict what you want to do, you know, until you're done with your residency. Dr. Richter, is there anything else that you feel like is important about burn surgery that you would like to tell our audience or things that we've forgotten to ask you? No, I, I think the burn surgery rotation is, uh, it's pretty awesome. Uh, but again, I think with every surgery rotation that you do in residency, it's, you get out what you put into it. And burn surgery rotation is demanding. Uh, you're on call a lot. There's a, sometimes a lot of work at night. Um, but you can certainly learn a ton about wound care and specific surgical techniques when it comes to that. You just have to apply yourself and ask questions. Mm -hmm. Be interested because you have... Wagner and myself is your only, is your two people. So it's like you have a group. It's just us. We're always here, always <laughs> here to answer and help. And uh, yeah, so I, I think it's great. It's great you guys are on the rotation. It's, it's a, a very important skill to have as a surgery um, provider. Well, on that note, Dr. Wichita, we really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us. I think this is going to be great for our listeners. So thank you. Thank you. So, Allie, what did you take away from Dr. Wichter's interview? What a great interview. I think that there are multiple points to take away. One, just some of the basic aspects of burn care that he discussed. But I think that, like many of these interviews, the things, the words of wisdom that we pick up from our mentors are kind of more of the intangibles or just general things about practice. So the things that Dr. Wichter said about communicating, I think, are very, very important and then also the attention to detail and truly knowing your patient because 
You can't take care of someone if you don't actually know what's going on. And that is universally true. So I thank him again for all of those pointers when I was on my burn surgery felt or my burn surgery rotation. You know, I remember him asking me, we're rounding together, just the two of us on a Sunday about why Dr. Wagner and myself chose to put a specific type of dressing on a particular burn patient. And honestly, I didn't know. I think it was like the second day of my rotation. And he was like, look, this is your time, the same way that he said it in the interview, this is your time to gain as much information as you can and knowledge and skill during your burn rotation so you can take care of patients in the future. And you have to take ownership of that and ask the questions if you don't know the answers. So, And that advice applies broadly throughout the entire surgical residency experience. Yeah. Uh, that is the purpose of surgical residencies, ultimately be trained as a surgeon. So it is truly what you put into it is what you get out of it. Agreed. Well, that wraps up another week of Rocky Mount Surgery. Thank you guys for listening in. Thanks very much. And again, if you have any questions related to surgery residency, specific topics within surgery, we would love to try our hand at those. So give us an email at rmspodcast at outlook.com. Thanks, guys.